Hello, and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Kikonst. So voting is one of our most essential rights. And one way to measure our nation's progress over 250 years is to track the expansion of access to the polls. Mostly, the arc of voting justice has bent towards more access. Donald Trump is correct, and you won't hear me say those words often, when he says that he won more votes than any previous presidential candidate. Only Joe Biden got even more votes than Donald Trump, of course. You could look at all of this as an extraordinary and welcome expansion of voting. More people voted in the 2020 election than ever before in our country's history. But instead of celebrating this, the Republican Party, Trump and his fan base and QAnon are aligned in a push to take us backwards. Fired up by Trump's pure fantasy and the presidential election you know, was stolen from him and enabled by the QAnon conspiracy machine. The reality here, Guy, as you know very well, is that we have restrictive voting laws in several states throughout this country. Early voting in Arizona, a Republican state, might I remind you, has been in effect for over a decade. It is overseen by an independent commission. This is something that works. Republicans, Democrats, independents, they use early voting. It only became convenient when Donald Trump wanted to challenge the election because he had his own issues. So, you know, the Republican I understand the Republican Party is in a little bit of an existential crisis. They don't know whether or not to go with the conspiracy QAnon people in the Trump world or go with the logic-based people. So they have to figure out where to go. But the reality is... There's a lot to... There is a lot to unpack there. So Republicans have mounted what veteran political writer Ron Brownstein described as the greatest assault on the right to vote since Jim Crow. For years, Republicans have been trying to suppress voting with phony claims of fraud. They would scream fraud and then enact measures to prevent the fraud that they made up. Measures like ID requirements, whose real effect was to, of course, deter black and brown voters. This has been ugly. But as Biden's victory demonstrated, in the big picture, it hasn't worked. Certainly, it hasn't worked as well as Republicans wanted it to. So if your lie isn't working, what do you do? Oh, you tell an even bigger lie, of course. Now, it isn't just fraud by individual voters or even groups. It is a massive conspiracy now to steal the 2020 election. If you really believe that that happened, then the logical thing to do is make sure it never happens again, right? Except, of course, it didn't happen. And the real goal is to suppress voting. This is a modern-day version of burning crosses by the polling places. This is intimidation by legislation. 250 bills in 43 states. It's the number of bills introduced in state houses this last year to suppress voting. It hasn't just doubled or tripled. According to the Brennan Center, proposals to restrict voting have increased seven times this year. We need to push back against his ugly movement, Donald Trump's ugly movement, and push back hard. HR1 is part of that. It is a bill of voting rights that could help slow the Republican drive. But two things must be said. First, while the passage of H.R. 1 in the House is never in doubt, its future in the Senate is, of course, uncertain. And you've heard this here before. We don't know if Democrat Joe Manchin will support it, support voting rights. So this is where Joe Biden has to you know, stand up. We need his leadership. We need all 50 senators and Vice President Kamala Harris to understand the urgency of this. Either we protect voting rights now or we pay the price for a generation or two. It is not complicated. But the other point is that even with H.R. 1, there are ballots to be fought state by state. 
Arizona Republicans are trying to restrict mail-in voting, even though they've supported it for years, as I said. In Georgia, Republicans are pushing new rules to require an ID to get your absentee ballot and other measures that would restrict the manner in which more than 2 million Georgians voted in 2020. We can't afford to leave this fight all to a piece of federal legislation as valuable as that would be. Wherever you live, find out what's happening on voter suppression legislation in your state and join the fight to protect voting rights. You got to use it or lose it. This is super important. All right, we have an extraordinary show today. Uh, Simon Rode and Jordan Zacharin are back. And in a moment, we have a special conversation with Shannon Foley Martinez. She's a former white supremacist who broke free and now is an advocate for creating community resources against violence. And then just after that, we talked to Puerto Rican activists to discuss the status of Puerto Rico with David Galarza. He's a friend, he's great, you don't wanna miss it. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. Shannon Foley Martinez is currently an advocate for creating community resources against violence. She has worked for school systems, nonprofits, and community organizations, and she's worked with organizations at the UN Office of Counterterrorism, the National Counterterrorism Center, uh, and the Center for Prevention of Radicalization Leading uh, to Violence with UN Women. Uh, but the reason why is because she is a former white supremacist. Shannon, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I'm so interested in in your story. Uh, you know, I, just as a personal note, my um, my old roommate uh, won an Oscar last year with her husband for the movie Skin, and I'm I'm sure you know about Skin. Uh, it's a short film. I encourage a lot of people to watch it. But uh, I remember tracking her journey where she met a former white supremacist neo Nazi skinhead um, and told the story of this movie through through that lens. So it's 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 just an, an incredibly interesting um, path. So so tell us a little bit about your story. I mean, when were you? How did you get involved first? Um, so I'm 46 years old now. Um, I was in the white power movement from around the age of 15 until just about 20. Um, so I've been out for over 26 years. Um, but I um, the very, very shortest version is that I grew up in a dysfunctional household where um, I never really felt like I belonged. Like I always felt like the black sheep in my family. Um, but when I was young, I played a bunch of sports. I had a bunch of friends and stuff. Um, so I had like other avenues where I felt like I could succeed and I understood like the rules and stuff. And there were places I felt safe. Um, and I had like other adult mentors and, and stuff like that in my life. When I was 11, we moved from just outside of Philadelphia um, to rural Southern Michigan, just North of Toledo, Ohio. And when I got there, it was like, I didn't have the same hair. I didn't listen to the same music. I didn't dress the same way. And like the kids asked me if I was from England because my Philly accent was so strong that they like thought I was from another country. And so the sense of like not really belonging expanded from just inside my own home out into the greater world. At the same time, I was going through adolescence and doing what is the job of adolescence and trying to like, you know, grapple with my identity. Who am I? Who do I choose to be? And I was really drawn towards like counterculture, feeling like mainstream culture was never going to be a place that I really fit in. And at first I was actually 
um, really drawn to like 1960s uh, anti-war like protest uh, movement cultures and then via through some of that skateboarding and then into like the punk rock scene. When I went to high school, I um, made a choice to go to a private high school uh, across the border in Toledo from where we were living. Um, thinking like, okay, there'd be a bunch of other kids that like didn't go to school together, uh, like, and so maybe there'd be somewhere that I, you know, that I could like kind of like fit in. Um, and just because like the academics were more challenging and stuff. But when I got there, um, it was like all the cliques were already pre-established because they all went to like feeder schools together. So they like all already knew each other. Um, so I still, again, felt like I was really on the outside of things, but now um, there was a law in place at the time that if you lived out of state and went to school, high school in Ohio, you couldn't play high school sports. And so one of the like last remaining lifelines for me was severed. And so at this point, like I didn't have any trusted adults in my life. I didn't have any coaches who were mentors. And like, and I did some stuff. I was actually like in student council and did um, mock UN and stuff like that. But it didn't have the same like draws like, hey, we just won the championships. Yay. Um, and so I spent more and more time like going to punk shows and stuff like that. At the very end of my freshman year, when I was 14 years old, I went to uh, a party where I like lied to my parents about where I was going and started drinking right when I got uh, to the party. And by the end of that night, I was sexually assaulted by two men. When I woke up the next day, um, my first thought was like, did that really happen? And once I was like, okay, yeah, that really happened. My very next thought was like that there was no way I could tell my parents. Because growing up in the household that I did, that my older brother and I were shamed and blamed every time there was something, you know, it's like if you came in with a bloody lip, you know, they, their first thought was like, how many times have we told you not to play like tackle football? How many times have we told you not to climb trees barefoot or whatever? And there was this protective part of me that was just like, I can't accept, like, I can't deal with the additional trauma of being blamed and shamed for this sexual assault that just happened on top of the sexual assault itself. So I took all that trauma completely unprocessed and just shoved it down. Mm -hmm. um, as we know, trauma doesn't dissipate, it festers. And in my case, it festered into like deep self-loathing. I felt so completely worthless. And the main way that that manifested was through rage, rage that I didn't understand. I didn't have the skills or tools to process. I wanted to hurt myself, which I did. I wanted to hurt anything and every, everyone that like I came in contact with. The angriest people on the periphery of the punk scene where I hung out were the Nazi skinheads. Mm -hmm. I got in fights at every show. And I think the rage within me really resonated with the rage that they displayed. And so I started spending more and more time hanging out with these people um, and began like listening to some of the like white power music that they listened to, read some of the zines and literature and stuff that was out there. Um, and what I was doing, which I didn't know at the time, when we know like from research that people that are doing this now don't recognize this either, that I was building an echo chamber um, for myself. In my case, it was a physical echo chamber that I began to only associate with and only immerse myself in these spaces and around these people. And so everything that I was, you know, whether it was like watching uh, a TV show or listening to music or whatever, I was filtering everything through the lens of this echo chamber. And then the the there was you know the spiral effect where everything was like normalized inside uh that echo chamber so what is i mean what does a community like that look like i mean you you were very young um 
and and you know there's no surprise a lot of people are radicalized when they're young and impressionable and are dealing with issues uh trauma identity all, all the all the things that you've mentioned but um yeah i mean was it was it an older community was it all young people like how were there meetings like how does it operate <laughs> well in my case it was i mean it was slightly older people than me um like older teens younger 20s primarily um very interestingly uh one of the guys was actually like this big black guy named carlos who identified as like a nazi skinhead and was completely accepted um so um just like that there's more than ideology going on with uh the dynamics that are there um, and I actually, throughout my time uh, in the movement, I actually knew multitudinous people who, like, we would not identify as white. Um, but there were all these, always these gymnastics and the exceptionality where it was like, okay, well, you know, my ideology is based on, like, hate of, the, you know, that this other group or whatever, but this person is an exception because I know them or, you know, or yeah, whatever. It's like the Republican Party now, like, you know. Yes, yes, it's very, it, it was very much like that. So they were mostly older, um, uh, slightly older. And then as I was in longer, um, like I ended up moving all over the country, um, living with different like cells of, of people. Um, and towards the end of things that I ended up down um, south in Georgia and knew a lot more um, people that were like uh, separatists and stuff like that. And they tended to be much older. They tended to be like 30s um, and older. Uh, but and like, the like skinheads were mostly older teens. There were always like a handful of younger, like just a few younger people around, very few women, um, which I think was like part of the draw for me that in the like gender dynamic way that I am, um, that I felt uh so disempowered like you know i didn't even have empowerment over my own body right and but because there were so few women um i could basically go out with whoever i wanted and so i always ended up going out with like the leader of like whatever sort of cell i was in and i think that there was this adjacency to power that was alluring to me too and it was like and most of my relationships while i was in were like incredibly violent there were only like two that weren't um, but I already felt like I was trash and I was worthless. And so that didn't like that, that messaging that, that violence towards me reaffirmed what I already believed about myself. But there was also this sense in which that adjacency to power extended, like not only, yeah, they might like hit me, but whatever I, I deserve that, um, it was my thinking at the time, but they will also protect me from other threats and other right. people, uh, in the outside world. So is, is, um, I mean, what is the, what does the white supremacist movement do? What, like how there's such a rise right now where, I mean, we see the proud boys and there are, they, they have actions. When you say a word like a movement, like what is, what is a day-to-day, -day, uh, you know, the day-to-day -day life of one of these cells? How do they operate? So I think, um, there's a shift current like right now away from movementarianism and um that things are far more segmented and you know that it's that there that there's more a sense of the best language i have right now for it is like sort of like a worldview or whatever um so i think very few people who are in right now would identify themselves as being part of a movement um 
but and so and in present day what it means to be in or whatever the actions and the things that you do are going to vary widely from like are you somebody that hangs out on like youtube and moves people over to discord channels to like talk about stuff and do you you know like what the level of engagement is um in my case it was i mean in a lot of ways it was really just a bunch of people hanging out for a lot of the time right and like drinking beer and you know and stuff and stuff like that but it was all clouded and cloaked in um the in like neo-nazi ideology and stuff um, and so for us, it was like there would be earlier on while I was involved, um, you know, that there was like targeted flyering um, and graffitiing of places of worship of historically um, black or Jewish wow. uh, neighborhoods. Um, there were always fights, sometimes like just at like punk shows or whatever, but then sometimes just like random violence, like against people just, you know, walking down the street or um, you know, or whatever. Um, and when there wasn't that, that there was a violence uh, within like the group towards each other. It's like, there's always infighting. There's always, you know, and we see that now it's like every after Charlottesville, after January 6th, it's like, there's all this fracturing that always takes place. And that's endemic. I wish like we did a better job, like in terms of, uh, of exploiting that to, <laughs> to like help dissuade and like break well, up Trump some of the influence that, <laughs> that I have, right? That there's all this like influence that, that, that I think we could have if we exploited that a little bit better because there's always infighting. Mm -hmm. um, different people, you know, grappling, their broken egos grappling to be like the important one. Um, in, I mean, when in you the say group. flyering, like what are they flyering about i mean I, I i we see things in new york all the time where someone's you know outside of a synagogue they stage actions they uh you know have swastikas up it's it's it's, it's horrifying but i mean like what's the agenda like that's what to torment people or is it to like to move people i mean i know this is a very strange i know that youtube right now i understand the discord and they want to grow the movement and and radicalize people more but um what's the goal <laughs> Well, I think even that, I think even that characterization is, it misses the mark a lot for a lot of what, what we're seeing too, that like, um, that it's to be offensive. Like, I mean, that, that, so. So it's like provocative. If you think, a... if you think like, like I felt so um, disconnected and disempowered, right? Like that the allure of, and the, of the illusion of empowerment of like, people being afraid of me and you know knowing that I could create a reaction out of people um like that that was very seductive that that felt very the closest I could probably ever get to like genuine empowerment or whatever um while I was in so I think a lot of the dynamic honestly is to like feel that feel that sense and uh, that allure of power that you have over people like where it's like you can you could I could post something if I was you know if I was in present day it's like I could post something to like Twitter or whatever and immediately get people angry and upset and exploit that and that you know I mean and that that would like feed this like broken need set that I had and that's some of that like when you're if there was like targeted firing outside of places and you know I mean part of it too is like just this creation of others um I like I was unable to I didn't understand 
that I felt like the world was a dangerous and threatening place. Like in like I felt that way all of the time that it was very expedient for me to hold on to a group of others as the, as the reason why, as like who to blame for why I felt like I didn't have what I ought to have, why I felt, you know, threatened, why I felt like I wasn't thriving, um, that it was incredibly, incredibly easy for me to like hold on to the explanations of others as the reason for that. Um, so how did you, how did you get out? I mean, that's like, it's, it's, it, it's, it's almost like a cult, right? Like I, you hear these stories about how women break free from their cult. Was it similar? I mean, what did you have like an awakening moment? I think, um, and you know, cause some of the work that I do now is I, I mentor people as they are leaving, um, these beliefs and, and spaces and stuff like that. Um, and one of the things we want to really, we really, really want the stories to be like very cinematic where there's like a singular moment. And that's nearly never the case that it is a process. Um, and for me, I ended up at one point, not really having anywhere to go. Um, and I was going out with a guy incidentally, who was in the army, who was like a white power skinhead. Um, so not a new problem. Um, and I didn't have anywhere to go and he was still living on base. Um, but I had met his mom who said I could go live with her and her uh, three younger sons. She was like a single mom and had two 11 year old boys at the time and a nine year old boy. Um, and when I to get away because you couldn't live on the base, but you wanted I couldn't to live on away. the base. I was like, I would end up leaving and like coming back to my parents' house every now and then, like if the relationship I was in got too violent or if I got picked up as a runaway or whatever. And at this point I was finally like 19. So they were just like, you just have to leave. Like you can't, you just can't stay here anymore, which was fine with me. Cause we didn't really get along, but I didn't have anywhere else to go. And his mom said I could go live with her. I only found out maybe like a couple years ago that she didn't know like what her ideology was or whatever. But I mean, like if I showed up on my she front door, no, she didn't know that her son was yeah. white supremacist. She, no, she Did didn't she disagree with it. Oh, uh, yes. I think wholeheartedly. Yes. Wow. Like, uh, you know, she was like a Montessori school teacher what? and <laughs> had lived in Brazil and talked about what? how much she loved, like all the different cultures and everything. This, I, I was, what? <laughs> like, how does that happen? I mean, you know, I guess you see, so she didn't see the vile creature that I had become. She saw this young woman who was hurting and needed a place to stay. Right. Like, which is, yeah. But essentially what happens as soon as I walk in that door is that my echo chamber begins to break up yeah. because I wasn't super well connected with the like white power scene where they lived. Um, and so now there's like other inputs happening and I start, you know, I'm like reading the Chronicles of Narnia to these little boys before bed and like playing Frisbee and playing football. And I was kind of like, oh yeah, like this is what people do. Like, this is like what lives are like, because my life had been so like hyper violent that it was, I was so disconnected from all of the like best things about being alive, like laughter and, you know, other than like mean hearted laughter at someone's expense or whatever, but like joy and wonder and awe and a sense of curiosity and, you know, genuine connection with other people that was like, oh yeah, like this is like what a life actually entails. Um, and at the same time, she did some stuff where it was like, she tangibly connected me with resources I needed to like, to begin to move my life forward. That it wasn't just like, you should go to college. It was like, 
have you thought about going to college and if you're going to do that you need to take your SATs so here's a number two pencil in your hands get in my car I'll drive you to your SATs that she like connected me with some of these resources in a very tangible way to help me begin to like move my life forward and so it was like in this environment where it was like and I didn't have to espouse an ideology to belong it's like they just I had to do the dishes sometimes or whatever did and they so, like come after you though I mean was as you were breaking free did the community you know try to take control because it entailed me moving um I, my folks were living in georgia and this family lived in texas that i wasn't really well known and i wasn't really well connected so i was able to not feel a sense of like immediate physical danger um as i exited and again like i don't know that i identified as it was happening that I was like exiting, right? Like I was kind of beginning to weigh stuff and be like, is this really who I am? Is this, because that was not who I, who I was before I got in. Is this really what I want to die for? Is this really what I want my legacy to be? Is this really like what I want to invest all of myself and my life in? Um, and it was like, and I liked me, like I loved Billy Bragg, like loved Billy Bragg. And you know, and so it was like, how do I like love this music so much? And at the same time, hold this like ideology that is literally the antithesis of this music that I feel so moved by. Um, and the same with like other like poetry and art and stuff. And I'm like, how do I, how, how do these two things coexist within me? Right. Um, and I think the stability and the, you know, in that environment, my broken need set was being genuinely and much more effectively met than the illusion and the coping mechanisms of being inside the movement. And so I think all of that created the space that I needed to shift and begin to examine like what my life had become. And so it was probably like four or five months that this, that my ideology began to fall away, but it would be like much, much longer. Um, before I would just, before I would be in a space where I would even just be like, oh, maybe you really need to kind of figure out how you got there in the first place and mm -hmm. to like sit with the, like, with the shame yeah. of what I had done and what my life had become and process that in anything even remotely resembling a healthy way. Like I still didn't, ha I still had, until I was like 23 years old, I framed what happened to me when I was 14 as simply like, I lost my virginity to two men at a party when I was 14. It took me almost 10 years to be like, okay, there's a word for that. And it, that word is rape. And you know, like to be like, oh, well, my whole rest of my life makes right. a whole lot more sense now that I have like that word for it. Yeah. But it was like, that was again, like that was a very messy process and it's ongoing, right? Like, right. and it's like this healing and then amends making and, you know, and continued healing and continued amends making. So Shannon, um, you know, we have to wrap in a couple of minutes, but if, if you were to give advice to folks um, about sort of the state of this, this, uh, this radical, I'm not going to call it a movement, but like what's happening in terms of, of in this country right now um, with white supremacy, whether it's in your face white supremacy or muted in some way, I mean, what can folks do to be more aware of it and, and combat it? I mean, that's um, the work you do now, so. Yeah, so I think, um, number one, to educate yourself. Immerse yourself um, in the books and articles and lectures and materials of 
um, black activists, indigenous activists and scholars, people of color, learn as much as you can from their point of view about what white supremacy really looks like. Because it, it's not just this, it's not just this overt and most violent sense, like it's endemic, it's the system that we live in, right? And we, I think we like to, we, we like having overt and violent white supremacists as part of us because it allows us to externalize mm. white supremacy mm. and then we don't have to do the internal work that's really oh, wow. required of us to change right so if we are immersed in that work and that learning from a personal standpoint that helps us i think also um learning more about the multitudinous like ways people can be traumatized like it's not just acute trauma that like i also had all this like developmental trauma there's historical trauma there's epigenetic trauma there's perpetrator trauma right. that there's all of these overlappings of trauma and how um and how those things like manifest um because they manifest many times in wanting to simplify life and simplify threats and threat detection and we do that overwhelmingly through a creation of others as reasons why we feel like the world is a dangerous and threatening place. And I also think um, it's really crucial. I mean, I'm a mom. I have seven kids, right? So like mo my whole adulthood has been like, how do you help people to thrive so they never become me? Like, what do you have to do? Um, and I think one of the pieces that is left out of the dialogue is that we very much have to do a much better job of emotional learning, mm -hmm. like that there's neuroscience that says even just learning how to like name the emotion that you're yeah. feeling helps you. And then learning how to I, like just sit with that emotion and feel where, how it's manifesting in your body. Um, and then, you know, and then even just simple things like that can have an enormous impact because if you can say, you know what, like, I, you know, I'm waiting for this like survival money check to show up and I'm really afraid that I'm not going to be able to pay my rent. That if you can sit with like this, you know, and say like, I feel really afraid. I feel very like disconnected from power. I, you know, I feel like I don't have any path forward. I'm feeling disconnected. If you're able to say those, even just saying and naming those things that you're feeling gives you a better ability to be able to handle them more effectively and holistically. And so I think that that is on a very personal one-on-one -on -one level, like engaging with our whole heart in like in that emotional learning and then passing that on to the people and communities around us would have an enormous and nearly immediate impact. Super fascinating. Um, Shannon, thank you for sharing your story and advice. And I think it's extremely relevant to this moment and we shall have our eyes open. So, um, you know, the advice at the end definitely hits home. So Shannon, thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate your, your, uh, being willing to vulnerable and open. Thank you. Thank you. All right. We will be right back with David Galarza to talk about, uh, <laughs> Puerto Rican statehood and white supremacy. <laughs> Sneak peek. <laughs> be right back. Welcome back. David Galarza is a labor activist. He's a community activist and organizer, a New Yorker, a Puerto Rican, my friend. <laughs> Thanks for joining us last minute. I was like losing my mind. I was like, who can I call? To, I mean, because it can't come from me. It's got to come from 
from you. So, um, all right, like just to, to remind folks who are watching right now, uh, there is once again, <laughs> uh, there is a piece of legislation that was put forward yesterday um, introduced by the resident commissioner, which is the congressional member, uh, non-voting member from the island of Puerto Rico. She is a Trump supporter, she's a right winger and she's a statehooder. Uh, she introduced the idea for statehood, but along with some Democrats, which is maddening because I just started tweeting some things out. And of course, well-intentioned progressives were like, what's wrong with statehood? And I feel like I hit my head against the wall every single time. I'm like, So David, because I'm out of words, could you please explain to folks the history of statehood on the island of Puerto Rico? And I'll just follow up with more questions. Sure, thank you, Nomiki, first and foremost for inviting me, even though it was last minute, that's fine. Um, I just got back actually from Puerto Rico about a week ago. So uh, I'm, you know, I have a, a whole new way of looking at things just from the last time I was there, which is pre-pandemic, which has been about a year. I usually try to go a few times a year. I do have family currently living in Puerto Rico, my father, my sisters, and so forth. If we will get to get into the whole history uh, of, of the status of issue of Puerto Rico, it could take, could take a, more, more, than a, more than I'm sure the time allotted to talk about this issue now. But yeah. uh, just in a nutshell, um, it's 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 uh, very interesting because yesterday uh, it was it's a uh, it was also a day that um that actually the, the March first let's go back to March first for instance it was a day in which um, some several Puerto Rican freedom fighters led by a courageous woman by the name of Lolita Lebron uh, back in 1954 led an assault on uh, on the U.S. Capitol to proclaim independence for Puerto Rico and um, this is a, a group of a group of uh, we call freedom fighters from Puerto Rico. Not, on, not like the terrorists that, that attacked the capital on January 6th, that were you know resolute in their conviction that Puerto Rico should be free. Uh, it's been what year was that? Back in 1954. And uh, it's interesting that yesterday, uh, when this, this bill was introduced, was the day in which last year, on March 2nd, the last remaining freedom fighter from that original group of four passed away, yeah. a gentleman by the name of Don Rafael Cancel Miranda. And so today actually is a day that we celebrate or commemorate the national poet from Puerto Rico, also a freedom fighter by the name of, uh, uh, oh my God, <laughs> I, just, I just came back, Juan Antonio Corregel from the town of Ciales, Puerto Rico. So I say that all to say that it's been a long and illustrious, but also heavily oppressed movement for independence in Puerto Rico for many, many years. And it was oppressed in the 30s and 40s and 50s by the by, the federal government uh, that imposed statehood on uh, I'm sorry, imposed citizenship on the people in Puerto Rico, and also uh, by the local police forces and so forth, and the FBI and and um, yes. you know wiretapping the independence movement and there's, there's, much you know, more it, than that. that was, but yeah, it was, imprisoning. Than, it was worse than Cointelpro before Cointelpro, but it was a very systematic system of uh, of uh, taking out uh, imprisoning. Uh, killing and um, marginalizing the independence movement in Puerto Rico. But thank you, Nomiki, for starting that whole thing with progressives, because there is a misconception by progressives in this country that think that the ultimate culmination of colonialism is statehood, which right. nothing could be further from the truth. Right now, we have an issue with D.C. I wanted to get statehood for its citizens. And by and large, a lot of people do support that, progressives included, obviously, because it's a matter of civil rights. In terms of Puerto Rico, we, persons like me and others, seek independence of Puerto Rico because it's a question of human rights, 
right? It's not the same. It's not the same thing. It's apples and oranges when we talk about the ultimate culmination of their, their particular status. Right now, we have at least 3.5 million Puerto Ricans, obviously living on the island, that uh, whose citizenship was imposed back in back in just in time, you know, to use them as cannon father for World War One and World War Two right. and the Vietnam War and the Korean War and so forth. And these are folks that, you know, by and large, didn't have a choice whether to become citizens of this country or not. That was an imposition that was forced on the, the original Jones Act uh, right. back in the earlier part of the 20th century. What Nydia just prefaced, you know, right before we spoke. Representative Velasquez. What, the video. what uh, yeah. Congresswoman we call her Nydia, other people call her. La, I know, just I, for I folks who aren't. Of course, her La Luchadora. I kind of <laughs> think that AOC also fills the bill yeah, as well that. as a Luchadora. Uh, introduced the Self Determination Act that would actually be more comprehensive and more uh, fair, fairer in its in its intention. Pedro Pierluisi, the governor of Puerto Rico right now, comes from the so-called new progressive party. And again, progressives need to get the fact that there's nothing progressive about the new progressive party. A year and a half ago, a million people took to the streets in Puerto Rico, Namiki, and I think you were there as well, to demand the resignation of another governor from this same party, the statehood party, by the name of Ricky Rosselló. And he was ousted. And Pedro Pierluisi, who's the governor be, be, now, because of a chat—not that I mean he—he—he he, he was a bad governor beforehand—but there was a chat that was released. This is an important part. This is the yes. statehood party. The statehood party. A chat was leaked of his inner circle saying the most disgusting, racist, sexist, egregious things. Imagine Trump's inner circle, mm-hmm. and that was leaked, and he had to step down. Yeah, in particular, he made fun of the dead that died during the Hurricane Maria. And it was egregious. It was disgusting. He had something within that chat to be just about offend everybody and anybody. And it was the straw that broke the camel's back. And uh, and everybody rose up, irregardless of political party, because you can't get a million people out into the streets of uh, San Juan and, and shut down, literally shut down all commerce and business in Puerto Rico without having the participation of people across the political spectrum. And we've had that before when we've galvanized people across the political spectrum to get the Navy out of Vieques, to get this uh, horrific gas pipeline project stopped in Puerto Rico, and to really get the release of our political prisoner, Oscar Lopez Rivera, most recently. There have been some really great victories where people have come together. And I believe that what Nidia's talking about now, what other people are talking about now is to have a fair an inclusive and transparent process to really bring about some kind of status change that will truly decolonize Puerto Rico. We've been through this exercise before. You know, so many times there have been so, so-called referendums and plebiscites. That, that's, I, I want to, yeah, let's talk about the result, referendums. That haven't resulted in anything because they've been so-called non-binding referendums. So they And the turnout's people, low. It's not, turn, turnout so historically people, has been that's low. important because people keep citing like, oh, but there was a referendum just a few months ago and, and 52% voted for statehood. First off, it, that's not overwhelming, number one. That's not a decision. Uh, you know, if you're going to decide what your status is as a, as a country, basically, mm-hmm. um, you kind of want it to be overwhelming. But second, the turnout was extraordinarily low. And it was right. basically, are you for a state or against a state, which doesn't reflect any of the dynamics on the island. There are multiple parties that take different status issues. But but what I think what I like, I, for folks who don't understand all the dynamics here, um, I'm curious. Okay, so the statehood party is the right-wing party. The person right. who represents the statehood party in Congress right now was a co-chair for Trump's campaign. That's right. The current about, governor, Latinos for Trump, <laughs> Latinos for Trump, exactly. The current governor is a right winger. 
the last governor was a right winger. Interestingly enough, Donna Mickey, though, the, the, the dynamic about the new progressive parties, they try to cover all their bases. I know, I know. And which, which shows the fallacy also of the two-party system, you know, in both in Puerto Rico and in this country. So he's a Democrat as well. Pedro yeah, Pilin, uh, right? in, in America. Yeah, yeah. Or but, in he the... was all, but he was also one of the most neoliberal uh, per persons that have come out of this fight against the, uh, it was just another thing that we can talk about, the Junta. He was actually the lawyer of the Fiscal Control Board that's basically become... Uh, the colonialism on steroids in Puerto Rico that basically controls the budget and all decisions that are made in terms of what agencies are getting cut, what schools are being closed down, what laws are being passed. It's a, it's a, it it's supersedes a, the legislature. So exactly. the legislature could pass something and then suddenly this fiscal or the governor, by the way, could sign something and the fiscal control board unelected is just like, you know, the colonial government has always had little power. People. This junta yeah. has all powers, pretty much, to come exactly. in and decide what to do. They're unelected, and uh, and they're unaccountable, pretty much, to anybody. And they've been uh, the the executive director is Natalie Jaresco, and she makes six hundred fifty thousand dollars a year. And uh, they get, you know, they basically get a blank check to cover all their expenses, both here and in Puerto Rico. They have consultants up the wazoo, so a whole bunch of lawyers and consultants are making mm -hmm. a bunch of money. And the fiscal control board is basically the uh, the uh, collection agency for all the vultures and all the bondholders and and uh, Wall Street investors that well made said. mints out of the, you know, out of on the backs of the Puerto Rican people. So. Um I found it interesting, uh, Jennifer Gonzalez, uh, the, the resident commissioner, the representative from the island, she said in, in, in a press conference uh, around this statehood bill that they've presented, which has a lot of Democrats signed on, by the way, uh, supposedly progressives too, like Jamie Raskin, which just blew me away. Um, she said, oh yeah, if, if, if Puerto Rico is a state, uh, we, we still, it wouldn't, we wouldn't eliminate the debt. Like we, so if, if the argument for statehood that, that some are making, which is illogical, right, mm -hmm. is that the position would be better, like the, 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 the funding, whatever. I mean, just so folks know, Puerto Rico is, was it three times more poor than Mississippi, our poorest state? It would be poorer um, than Mississippi if we came into the union, that's right. So like suddenly there's going to be a dynamic where they'd give more federal funding or something. I mean, they, there's federal funding that's been released, but not used. There's a lot of issues here, but she's saying, oh, but we wouldn't eliminate the debt. So basically what do you get? You get possibly two right-wing senators, not Democrats, because right now there's no Democrats, like real Democrats elected. Mm -hmm. And there haven't been many over the last, what, 25 years. Right. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, let's debunk this. Like, if Puerto Rico becomes a state, what happens? You hit it right in the head, Mamiki. There's, there's not going to be any debt relief, or there's not going to be any relief so much for the people of Puerto Rico, because a lot of the, a lot of the vultures and a lot of the bondholders that continue to prey on Puerto Rico have their hooks into the Democratic Party and the Republican Party in this country. So they're beholden to a lot of those interests just as well. Um, we've, we've come to see that. Um, in um, in terms of the uh, the overall um, debt situation in Puerto Rico right now, um, and Judge Swain Taylor Swain here in, in, in New York City's or New York actually the federal court is the one that's actually been implementing a lot of these different uh, right. rules and laws that have been governing Puerto Rico for uh, the last year and a half I guess. 
um, they're not stopping until they get until they collect every penny, every single dime, every every single cent that they think they they're owed from these so-called triple exempt bonds and Kofina yeah. funds and everything else. So yeah, there's not going to be not only any relief in terms of the debt, but let's also remember that. Um, there's also other laws that have come into play in Puerto Rico that are going to make it even more difficult for um, uh, for the people of Puerto Rico to get 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 from under this this debt, which is these things called Act 20, Act 22, and Law 60, which are which you know it's interesting that right now there's a flood of millionaires and billionaires flocking to Puerto Rico uh, to avoid paying their taxes or to dodge taxes because of these laws that were created now so they can avoid paying their capital gains taxes and, and other sorts of taxes that have been sh- used as shelters now for people like John Paulson um, and others, uh, you know, that a, he's, a, who, a real also, estate. Or, uh, John, no, John Paulson is a big investor, big Wall Street That's guy, right. who was also one of the big, one of the first hedge fund vultures to embrace Donald Trump. Um, but so, he's been buying up real estate um, they've been gobbling years, up real estate all over Puerto Rico. Yeah. And but he didn't stuff. use the Act 20. That's a very, sorry, side note. Yeah. Strangely enough, he actually didn't use Act 20 because probably he just doesn't want to be important because you have to be on the island for like 100 But, but he's influential something. in getting it passed yes. and supporting yes. it because obviously he's been, he's, 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 there's been an influx of a lot of these millionaires and billionaires that have been coming to Puerto Rico right. uh, to take advantage of these laws. And uh, and it's, you know, it, it's just created a flood of, you know, of these Act 20, 20. I mean, they have a, they have a society called Act 20, 22 society where they make they facilitate the move from the states um, to uh, to Puerto Rico so they could take advantage of and then so you have a situation where the billionaires and billionaires are not paying their taxes uh, Puerto Ricans tend to pay some of the highest taxes uh, in, in in the in the, in the world if not you know the, yeah. the U.S. Uh, in terms of what's you know what the, the taxes that are going toward paying those, these Cofina bonds um, and and meanwhile the infrastructure and the services, the public services are falling apart, literally, or, literally. They're, being pri- or they're being privatized. Right. So right now the airport has been privatized. The highways have been privatized. Um, the, the, they're not doing a job with the highways. They've, they've, sh- they've, they've shut down over 400 public schools. Right. And it's just, you know, on and on and on. They just continue to privatize. And there's, you know, and I, and I just told you, I just came back from Puerto Rico. There's an unfettered land grab like I've never seen going on, especially along the coasts right. and places close to San Juan, but even in the mountains and even in the, in the countryside, folks are buying acres and acres upon land. And we need that land right now to, uh, to, grow, to grow an agricultural economy, a cultural base right, right. now. So, you know, that's, you know, there's a lot of things afflicting the island. This vote or this uh, status issue for the, for the most part, um, is, is almost like a distraction, especially coming from the new progressive party, because they know they know they have no chance in hell. Um, McConnell has already said, you know, that he's not supportive of such a bill. Uh, Chuck Schumer. Uh, who's that's that's what a, I don't understand. Chuck What's... Schumer also has a close relationship with Nidia and has said that he's not going to move something yeah. like this. So Nancy why? Schumer, apparently they haven't even approached. Um, I think they just want to set some kind of precedent or continue to think that they're, you know, that they have a, that they have some kind of momentum. I think they only had like maybe 50 or 51, uh, members of Congress support or latch onto this bill. I suspect that Nadia and AOC will probably pull together a broader coalition and they'll also get support in the Senate as well uh, to counter that with the Self-Determination Act that they just yep. um, that they just put out. And it's just incumbent upon, like you said before, uh, progressives, especially in this country, if they want to really be allies to people in Puerto Rico, they need to study the issue, talk yeah. to Puerto Ricans, um, and just know, you know, it, it really boggles the mind when I see groups that are like civil rights organizations like the NAACP, for instance, oh and God. others 
take take up positions on Puerto Rican status without consulting with people in Puerto Rico. It's insane. It's absolutely. I mean, I, I like I said, I'm on Twitter responding one by one to people, and and you know, we're doing this on the show as a public service announcement that again, this back the statehood issue is backed by written by you know a Trump person. Yeah. So you know, do your homework. Uh, David, I could, you know, I could talk about this for hours. This is like my favorite topic in the world. Um, so hope to have you back on soon. Hope to see you in person soon, yes. uh, post pandemic. And in the meantime, I gotta, I gotta do the rest of the show. We're running so late. It's my fault. Thank you. No, David, no you are the Thank best. You. Thank you for joining us. Uh, short notice. Take care. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. Thanks. All right. We'll be right back with our fabulous panel. Jordan and, and Simon have been so patient, so patient. Uh, we'll be back right after this very short break. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. Thanks to our fabulous guests for being so patient on today's, uh, today's show has been a little crazy. Uh, Simon Road is part of TNS, the show, the Nomi Key Show. Uh, he is also a former organizer for Bernie Sanders 2020. Jordan Zacharin runs the Progressives Everywhere newsletter and has a different background. I like this background. I like this one more. You want me I to like... put, the, put the back one? No, okay. I like real backgrounds. I'm yeah, a big I, fan. I didn't know how to change it. Oh. For a while, so I was just stuck. I was like, ah! I figured it out. <laughs> being attacked by dinosaurs. Yeah. Um, <laughs> All right. So guys, I saw this clip of uh, Reverend William, uh, William Barber, who is a great civil rights leader. Um, he has been uh, challenging the narrative around the $15 minimum wage and specifically called out Vice President Kamala Harris. Uh, let's roll that clip real quick to get your reactions. Yes. Good morning to you both. Reverend Barber, let's start right there. What are you asking Vice President Harris to do? Well, what, what white and black and brown people uh, in West Virginia are asking her to do and Schumer to do and Democrats to do, the people who have to choose between uh, buying food and, and paying for their heat, uh, they are saying don't take the relief out of the relief bill. Remember that 62 million people in this country were poor and low wealth before we came into COVID. So they're saying, Senator Schumer, keep it in the bill to, as it came over from the House. Uh, Vice President Harris override. There's a history of doing this. Hubert Humphrey uh, challenged the parliamentarian, Nelson Rockefeller, even Trent Lott fired a parliamentarian because he wouldn't give him tax cuts for the wealthy. Put it in the bill, override it, and then see if there's 60 votes in the Senate to override uh, the presider. The parliamentarian does not make the rules. The parliamentarian advises, and mm. there's a history of this. We are in a serious situation. 40% of African-American workers would be lifted out of poverty and low wealth if this were to pass. Uh, we know, we did a study last week, last year with the Economic Policy Institute, said if it happened immediately, 15, 39 million workers would rise up uh, to a living wage, which is, by the way, already a compromise, uh, because right. it should be 20-some dollars. And the March on Washington called for a minimum wage of $2 an hour, which today would be 15 but also it would pump $330 billion into the economy. And if you add to that expanding healthcare and infrastructure, it will actually create jobs over the long haul and it would help everybody. And lastly, we can't regionalize this because the poorest, one third of all the poor live in the South. The poorest persons 
in Appalachia and Alabama, they have been hurt the most by pandemic, the first to go to work, the first to get infected, the first to get sick, the first to die. And lastly, let us not remember, it's seven twenty-five for some people, but for restaurant workers, it's $2.13 an hour. Yep. This, this is the time we have to make a decision of whether we're going to play to the corporate interest or whether we're going to finally establish justice, establish justice. William Barber for president. That's all yes. I got to say. Jordan, <laughs> I mean, like, that's the case right there. It was the most, to my opinion, most beautiful every single, he hit every point. You know, you, you say you're for people of color. You say that you care about these communities. You can't say you care about frontline workers. Okay, lift them out of poverty. Right. That, these are the numbers. You say you want to regenerate the economy. What better way to regenerate the economy? You know, it's, it seems to me that there is, uh, you know, some Democrats really value the institutions, the institutions of the Senate, but it's hard to value those things like with William Barber when they have been used as institutions to keep you down for generations. Those traditions and institutions are only good for a certain number of people uh, decided back in the, what, I think the 19, 1830s, they decided how the filibuster would work. Uh, continuing on, it's been so, so used to harm people of color over and over and over again, people in poverty over and over and over again. And I think just today, there's no reason to take the minimum wage out other than Democrats just don't want to do it. You know, there is no, you can blame Republicans, oh, they'll filibuster no matter what, but you can get rid of it. You can get rid of the filibuster. You can get rid of the parliamentarian. It's irrelevant. You know, it's like that there's no reason to listen to them. And so this is a choice that Democrats are making. And unless they, I don't know, like want to win more elections, they will reverse course. But you spend years and years getting told, all right, $15 an hour, saying, okay, we're going to go for $15 an hour. State, a bunch of states have done it. If you're not doing it as a Democratic Party, you're allowing a few people, and I'm sure it's more than just Cinema and Mansion. I'm sure a bunch of people are hiding behind them because they would be putting pressure on them if they really, really wanted it. This is a choice, and it's a disappointing one, and one that's going to come and bite them back. I mean, Joe Manchin, he says $11 an hour is okay. In a recent story, he said, but that'll take people, a family of three to $22,000 a year, which is just above the poverty line. That's like what he wants. That's like his line for helping people, just so you're not technically in an incredibly low, and the poverty line is way lower than it should be. So, yeah, I thought you know, it used as long to be like 35,000. Yeah, wow. as long as you're not like eating out of the trash can uh, seven days a week, we're good. If that's, if that's your line, like Democrats will take, keep you, will stop you from eating out of the trash can sometimes. Uh, I remember well. in the DNC uh, platform committee meetings, which we'll get to in a second. Um, I remember being there in 2016 and a woman got up and we, we, we were fighting against uh, social security cuts, which like, why are we even having this conversation in the Democratic Party? And a woman got up there and she talked about how um, senior citizens in her community were eating cat food because they couldn't survive. And the response, like almost two seconds later, this is all on camera, from their, um, the, the, their, uh, the person that was moving votes was, vote it down, vote it down, vote it down. Like that was their physical response. And like what you just laid out, Jordan, I mean, this is the Democratic Party. It's like the curtain's been pulled back and like their only excuses, well, it was a, it's like a process thing. I mean, Simon, I don't, I don't even have a question now. I'm just yeah. like, how do I, how do we, like, what do we do how, when we're dealing with a party that's like not even responding to public pressure anymore? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's sort of like they, 
they value process over any actual outcome. They sort of imagine the government working in this way where you have like all of these sort of like regime of like rules where everything, if follow if it follows the rules will like outcome in justice or something, which is not how government works. It's not how anything political gets done. Um, and if Joe Biden wants to be like the FDR style president, he's really got to switch things up here. Uh, because I can tell you, FDR would be fighting for this. Um, and Joe Biden hasn't been fighting at all. I mean, proposing, you know, to, to put the $15 minimum wage in there is is good, but that's not fighting. Fighting is the next step. It's it's what you do when all of these forces come together and, and try and stop this from going through. Um, so I, I would like to see a fighter. Um, we don't have one. <laughs> so we have to sort of um, fight for ourselves and it's, it's a real struggle. I mean, obviously ideal would be that we just have like everybody is part of a union, everybody's able to organize collectively in their workplaces and, and um, negotiate for something even better than $15 an hour. Uh, but, you know, as we've talked about on the show, labor is really struggling. Like people are um, not able to advocate for themselves in their workplaces. And so we're looking to the government to just make one sweeping change just to raise the minimum wage to get some people barely above the poverty line. Um, and it's not happening. And it's going to get worse. I mean, that's what's so dis disgusting about this is that, you know, you made a joke about the trash cans, but we're not even, we don't even know. Like, we don't even know what the eviction crisis is going to look like once they start evicting people. I mean, to me, I think what's so jarring about this is how little shame they have. And if they are not feeling shame when like the world sees what's happening and we're on the precipice of, who are they defending? Like there are companies who are choosing like Amazon to pay their workers $15 an hour. Who are they defending, Jordan? I think they are honestly stuck in the politics of the past and they are defending themselves against attack ads that don't exist. You know, like 63% <laughs> of Republicans or 53, whatever it is, a majority of Republicans support the the Recovery Act, even with the $15 minimum wage. Two thirds of Americans support the $15 minimum, minimum wage. This is not a huge ask. You know, this is not saying like, please give everybody, send everybody like a seven gold bars and you know, uh, whatever. It, this is not a big deal. And yet they turn it into a big deal. Today alone, whether it's Joe Manchin or someone else, they decided to lower the threshold of pe uh, for people who will get stimulus checks right. from $100,000 to phase out to 80,000. There is literally no reason to say to 17 million people, Donald Trump give you a check, but the Democrats will not. That is a choice and like a self-inflected wound. And I don't know if they think it makes them seem responsible, you know, but that's fine. Like imagine, you know, you're, you're in the rain, a lightning storm. It's, you know, people are shooting bullets at you. You get, you get up to uh, the front door of a store and you please let me, let me, let me in. And like, sorry, we're closed technically one minute ago. That's like what Democrats are doing. Yes. And they're saying we're following the rules and we're just being conservative and knowingly and willingly letting people suffer. 17 million people will not get this check. 17 million people will yeah. be bitter and angry and say, hey, look, you said if we voted for Democrats in January, if they took over the Senate, they would immediately get $2,000. They're not getting $2,000, first of all. Second of all, 17 million of them will not be getting anything. And good on Reverend Barber for calling out Kamala Harris, because if yeah. she has any interest, it's getting, it's getting elected president. But right now the pathway, and surely she can, she can smell it, right? She can see where the wind is blowing, that if, they don't do anything in two years. Not only are they not going to have a Democratic House or Senate, but they won't have a future Democratic President Kamala Harris. Like, so much needs to be done to get to that place. Um, 
it, just just for the sake of time, I, I want to play this clip from uh, our our favorite person, Bill Crystal, on uh, on Neera Tanden's uh, decision to step out of the OMB position. Uh, the fight. Let's play that. House pulling the nomination of Neera Tanden to lead the Office of Management and Budget, and I know you know her. You've been very vocal um, that you thought that it was uh, not right. The, the heat that she took uh, for, for her tweets and uh, the, her nomination overall. They've now pulled it, right? So that's going to be a failure for that nomination. Is it the right thing to do? I mean, if they don't have the votes, they don't have the vote. She would have been a good OMB director. I think it's ironic that the entire Republican Party is against someone who would have been a tougher OMB director, a little more resistant to big government liberal spending programs, I would say, <laughs> than whoever's now likely to get the job. But she'll still be in the administration and uh, life will go on, I suppose. Uh, I do think it's not an accident that they went after. I mean, she's not the most liberal person who's been nominated, yet somehow she was the br took the brunt of the assault. What, why exactly was that? Well, and you know what? I'll leave it there, but I just note quickly to our viewers, right? You have Republicans a lot, uh, allied with people like Bernie Sanders, right? They didn't like her, Bernie Sanders, uh, and the progressives because, uh, you know, she was, they thought, too conservative to embed with Wall Street. So it makes the point you make, right? It wasn't as if Republicans went after the most progressive person that they were putting forth. Thank so you both. So what I find interesting about that is the argument that they've been making is like, she's so progressive, she's so progressive. And she, Erin Burnett is by no means a progressive. <laughs> she's like called it out. Um, all right. I mean, my, my, obviously this is a moment where a lot of people are excited uh, that have dealt with Neera Tandon head to head, including myself. Um, thank you for all the Politico hit pieces, Neera. It was real fun. Uh, <laughs> but she's not going away. I'll tell you that. She's going to get something out of this. What do you think you'll get? she'll get, Jordan? I'm glad to see that at least someone over the last year has received some sort of, you know, second job offer compensation for after having to, you know, be laid off from or let go from a job opportunity. Like the only person in like 20 million people in America to get a second chance with a job. So that's exciting. Um, you know, I, I, I don't care about Neera Tandon. I, I, I'm not sad that she has to leave. You know, she, um, you know, if I can't get jobs because of my Twitter, she shouldn't be able to get jobs because of her Twitter. Um, I will say that, you know, it's, it's interesting that they said they would fight tooth and nail for her. Didn't happen. I don't know if they're doing that for minimum wage. I hope that maybe this shows that they should get rid of, you know, the Republicans will work with them, that they should get rid of a filibuster, that they should maybe go around the rules. Maybe that losing one of their uh, crown jewels of icky conservativeness will help them right. realize. I mean, hopefully that's the silver lining because, you know, I'm not too worried about Neera Tannen's future. I'm not worried about her bank account too much. Uh, I just hope that they learn a lesson that, you know, yeah, Republicans are not going to work with you no matter what you give them. Oh, I'm worried about her future, not because I care about her future. I care about where she's going to start throwing missiles next. I'm not worried on her behalf, I should say. <laughs> That's better, yeah. yeah. Okay, Simon, where's yeah. she going to go? Where do you uh, think she's going <laughs> to throw the missiles next? <laughs> well, what I want to know is if she's going to go back to Twitter. She's just made all these like public apologies for all of these tweets that she made. And That's I'm good. very curious if she's going to go back with a vengeance and be like, oh, I'm out for blood. <laughs> all the Take people it back. Done didn't confirm me. Maybe she'll come out in support of Bur no. She's she's blaming Bernie. Yeah, no, no. Yeah, yeah. They were blaming conservatives, and now they're blaming Bernie, and they can't they can't keep it straight. <laughs> um. All right. So uh, last but not least, MSNBC is calling to challenge institutional establishment Democrats. What is going on, guys? When MSNBC is now moving to the like challenging the establishment. I mean, back to the orig original conversation of like if if capital is like saying, okay, yeah, $15 minimum wage. If MSNBC is like challenge some of these Democrats, who is holding the, who's controlling the Democrats right now? 
This is so interesting. All right, let's play the clip. Progressives outside of Congress are feeling more emboldened to launch these primary challenges against sitting Democratic leaders and Democratic incumbents, including the latest Congressman and Democratic House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer, who, as you know well, Casey, soared to re-election last cycle with over 60% of the vote, faced a number of primary challengers and came out relatively unscathed. But when I talk to progressive candidates and organizers, especially those who are lining up against him, they're saying, look, we're looking at the country racial demographics changing. We're looking at the fact that we're in a post-Me Too era, a post-George Floyd era, and we feel that because the political landscape is changing in this way, it's changing such that it will reward diversity and diverse candidates who ultimately crop up and they hope become successful. You know, the two folks who have already lined up to challenge Leader Hoyer are both black, both openly campaign on these kind of race and gender dynamics that I just laid out, and are both open progressives who are saying, look, we need to get a number of things done, even though Democrats Democrats control the House, the Senate, and the White House, they're still not happy that enough is being done. And in terms of Hoyer specifically, okay. I mean, he's obviously so, a longtime leader. He's the number two House Democrat. Uh, he's someone that has been so, well-respected, frankly, on both. Um, I find this fascinating because, like like I said at the top, like, first off, to get this coverage, let's just flash back. For, for the youngins watching right now, four, five years ago, what is it, 2021, five years ago, you couldn't even talk about campaign finance reform on cable news. Then, like, you know, of course, like, they didn't have a lot of Bernie. But, but like, the reality is, is these conversations just didn't really exist. Now, it's not because there's a primary. It's not because, you know, it's Hillary versus Bernie and they have to put some leftists on. It's not because of, of a crowd. This is, they're, they're initiating this conversation, like, with some of the biggest leaders. So, I... I what do you think is happening, Jordan? Like, is this just they're looking for drama or is it something more? <laughs> I think that people are lots, not smarter, but more informed after four years of Trump. I think learning the different laws that uh, between Robert Mueller and between how the Senate would work and how Kavanaugh would be, uh, you know, uh, uh, confirmed how Amy Coney Barrett would be confirmed, how yeah. voter suppression works. I think that to their credit, viewers are much more informed. I don't know if it's because of cable news, but I think cable news probably gets the feedback and sees on Twitter and sees on social media that like, oh, people are talking about these things now and not just like, uh, you know, pantsuits or something. So I think that, I think it does make a difference. And I think that people have become more educated. And I think that also will push Democrats more. I think that MSNBC, while a corporate network, is also responsive to viewers to some degree. And, you know, they can't just cheerly, cheerly, cheerly Joe Biden's uh, dogs and uh, he, he, they, his grandkids call him Pop. No one cares because we're all suffering. And so I think that to a degree, as people get more educated about these yeah. sorts of issues, uh, we've had a lot of time to sit at home and read about them, that's for sure. Then, you know, cable news has to go alongside. And then when Steny Hoyer, Steny Hoyer uh, calls for the end of the filibuster, you know, that's, that's kind of signals that it's a mainstream position. This is, it's amazing. This dynamic is is incredible. I I mean, if like you said, if if, if everyone was suffering, um, if I was reading about this, and if I was watching a movie, I'd find it really interesting. Uh, Simon, other than the fact that it includes uh, massive pain and suffering of Americans starving and seem to be homeless, um, I mean, the political tides are changing. You know, there is a, a lot of energy around uh, progressive candidates right now, and uh, I mean, MSNBC would be remiss not to report that. I wonder, though, if they knew how this reporter was going to be framing this story, uh, because they could easily have like said, oh, look at like Democrats are challenging Democrats right now, you know, right. like 
we just secured the White House and now these dangerous progressives are trying to destabilize everything. Uh, and I don't know, I don't know if they thought they could spin the story that way, but um, the reporter definitely framed it in a different light. Um, I mean, Axios is no like progressive publication. So it's, that was really amazing. Um, you know, the conspiracy theorist in me is like, well, how much of this stuff was just generated by like the Clinton campaign for years? And like, was it really capital or was it like the Clinton campaign just, you know, trying to eliminate Bernie Sanders because they hated, I don't know, maybe the conspiracy theories. I still think we see a lot of the, you know, base Democrats saying, well, what can we do? Is it, it's better than having uh, no Congress. It's better than not being able to pass anything. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, what, the, can they, what can they do about Manchin? Maybe he'll Republic. Call, uh, become a Republican. There's still plenty of like base Democratic MSNBC head voters who are, you know, big riding with Biden hashtag uh, fans. So I don't think it, the base is totally moved, but I think that they're a lot more aware of why they say they can't do things. And I think there'll be a lot of frustration, especially what we saw with Georgia voting rights. If they don't pass, and we saw the Supreme Court yesterday, if they don't pass HR uh, 1 for the People Act and John Lewis Act, that that's it. That's the ballgame. And so I think that if there's pressure on anything, it's going to be that. And I think that that's undeniable. You can't even say that, well, a little bit is better than nothing. Like you either pass that or you don't, or you lose. Exactly. That's, that's what we opened with today. It's, it's got to pay attention to this stuff. Uh, the Republicans are well-funded, well-organized, and on attack right now with voting rights. Um, they rewrite the rules and we just play by the bad rules and say we can't rewrite them. That's it. And then we blame the rules. Yep. Well, I don't know. It's like the interpretation of the rules. Well, maybe you should be present. Um, <laughs> all right, guys. Always a pleasure. Love Wednesdays. Thanks for joining us. Thanks to everybody else for joining us uh, for this extra long show. Jordan Zacharin, Simon Road. Enjoy your weeks. Uh, we will see you next week. And to everybody else, thank you for joining us. Uh, what do we have here? Dorsey, I just got a blank message from you. <laughs> That's how we have to communicate. All right, here we go. Uh, shout outs. We got lots of shout outs today. Um, Rick's Americana. I attended your LA Super Tuesday event a year ago today. Thanks for the mug and most of all the chance to meet Michael Brooks forever in your debt for that. Yeah, I posted something on Instagram today that one year ago today was Super Tuesday and we had our first and only live event. Hopefully we can do more in the future, but it was an amazing event. Um, it was last time I saw Michael Brooks. Uh, Michael joined us for the event in LA and uh, so did Nando Vila, so did Justin Jackson, uh, Francesca Fiorentini, Alona Minkowski, and Lucy Flores and David Dan. Uh, they were all on stage that night and it was, it, was, it was a somber night. I mean, people showed up. We were hoping that Bernie would have won, uh, but it ended up being a little bit more somber. It was still, you know, it's good to be in company of friends and, and um, I'm really grateful that I had the chance to, to see Michael. Um, so thanks for that. Kyler Rosado, can Shannon come to Orange County, California or help us with some of the work in Orange County and Huntington Beach? We have a local professional that can help. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, I will put her information into the information section on, on YouTube. Kowalski from Nebraska, spreading dry fertilizer 150 miles south of my home in Kansas. Nebraska has higher taxes and minimum wage and our roads are better and have a, a higher median income. Interesting. Uh, Nebraska GOP wants to be like Kansas. So dumb. Nebraska's Democratic leader is my friend Jane Kleb. Love her. Um, she's a Bernie person. Pete from Oakland. Wow, Miki, another incredible stream. I appreciate the work you do so much. Thank you. 
I am proud of our show today. I feel like everybody was amazing and there was so much content. Uh, and anytime, you know, we can talk about Puerto Rico, I get really happy too. Uh, thanks to Professor Harvey K. We see you in that live chat. Thanks for, for, for mixing it up. And Midi Docs and Mario for working those algorithms. And of course, huge thank yous to our moderators, uh, Bob C, Chokin, The Orb, and Chuck Diesel on YouTube. And over at Twitch, Dorian Sapiens, A Difficult Truth, Nightbot, Armin's Nug Wrangler, you guys are all keeping the chat rooms troll-free. We are so appreciative to you. All right, we will see you tomorrow. Tomorrow, guys, special show. It is It is an all-Cuomo show. You've been asking for it. You're going to get it. I'm really excited, also very scared, because anytime you talk about Cuomo, he comes after you. But I feel like he's uh, he's got other people that he is more focused on right now than um, little Nomi Key. All right, be safe, be well, and stay in solidarity. <laughs>